Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible or your phone or your tablet, the words will be here on your screen as well. But if you can turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, we'll be there almost the entire time today. And uh, while you're doing that, I want to thank, of course, the, the leadership team here for allowing me to, to speak again. And uh, last week, you remember, Dave did have the, uh, the example of the taser, right? And uh, leading up to his preparation, he texted me randomly that week. He said, hey, have you ever been tased? And I said, yeah, but I'd rather be tased every week than be pepper sprayed again. And uh, I, w- I was afraid he was going to, you know, ask me to be tasered in front of you or, or something like that. Or, or, uh, or it, you know, honestly, if he probably saw my, my taser video, he probably wouldn't have me speaking this t- today. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I do thank you for the opportunity to, to speak. And um, this week, uh, we're going to get right into it here. Uh, we're continuing our series on rescue and we're looking at the defining moments in Jesus' life, uh, specifically from the book of Luke. And how the whole life of Jesus is truly a remarkable thing. And, and how the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he came not only to the world to, to live, uh, but he came born of a uncommon, you know, just common parents. And and uh, in a dirty old manger in Bethlehem, right? Nothing really special about that. And you think, why would the, the Savior of the world, the King, why would he possibly come in that manner? And I think one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite songs is uh, a song by an old contemporary Christian music group called For Him. And they have this song called, What a Strange Way to Save the World. And, and it seriously is, isn't it? And one of the lines in the song is written from the perspective of Joseph looking at Jesus in the manger. And Joseph asks these questions. And Joseph says, why me? I'm just a simple man of trade. Why him? Looking at Jesus with all the rulers of the world. Why here inside this stable filled with, hot, with hay? Why her? She's just an ordinary girl. And I'm not the one to second guess what angels have to say. But it's a strange way to save the world. And that's true. And we're looking at that this morning. And why did Jesus pick this earthly path? You know, if we look at these defining moments in Luke, we look at the whole life of Jesus and we realize that these things happened because they had to happen and not only cemented the steps to the cross and not only showed us that, of course, Jesus is our Savior, but also that he is the one that can understand us. He is the one that can be trusted. He's the one that went through what he went through. And because he went through these things, he has made a way for us as well. And now that you have your, your Bibles open, it'll be here on the screen. Let's read this account of Jesus' temptation from Luke chapter 4. And we'll read the whole thing and then we'll, we'll go back and look at a few key things. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. 
And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdom of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand up on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time, and we'll stop there for now. So as we consider this passage, and specifically these first two verses, let's remember where we were last week, right? We were in chapter 3, which was the baptism of Jesus. And remember, John the Baptist had been busy preparing a way for Jesus, right? He'd been telling people, hey, this is great, you know, I'm baptizing people left and right, and, and people are 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 going to believing that the Messiah is, is going to come in this person called Jesus. But remember, something far greater is coming besides me. Someone who's coming that's, that's un, I'm unworthy to tie, untie his shoes. And, he, and John is saying, hey, look, I'm baptizing you with water. But when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize you with fire. And so Jesus, he comes to John the Baptist and he flips this, the script, right? He's, instead of baptizing People, he asked to be baptized. And we saw that last week. And in this baptism, it's a remarkable thing. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, right? And then the voice from, of God from heaven comes and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so what's next after this? What could possibly top this? You know, I was thinking, where is Jesus going to go next? What sermon is he going to preach? What rally is he going to hold? What people is he going to heal? What questions are he going to answer? What synagogue is he going to sit in? And then all of a sudden we reach chapter 4. He goes into the wilderness. And it's not like the wilderness resort, right? It's not a two-day, little, two-night, all-inclusive thing. This is the wilderness where for 40 days and for 40 nights, he didn't need anything. So this is, by the way, this isn't some grand little setup from the devil. The devil's not setting Jesus up in the wilderness here. This was God the Father's sovereign plan. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the question is, why? So God, who was ultimately three in one, triune in nature, right? He sends Jesus there to confront the ruler of the world at that time, which is the devil. And there he sends Jesus alone and fasting. But in this wilderness moment comes one of the most blessed moments that can be an encouragement to us today. And, you know, it's easy for us to naturally assume from reading this passage that maybe something went wrong, right, to send Jesus into the wilderness. But in this first couple of verses here, we see an important lesson. And that is, 
You can be in the center of God's will, doing exactly what God wants you to do. And right there, you can encounter some of your greatest trials, some of the most challenging times, some of your deepest sorrows. And uh, my brother died in 2017 after a battle of cancer. And during that time, you know, he had a wife and kids and a lot of people that depended on him and cared for him. And he was active on Facebook, and he would post these things that, and I would take screenshots of him. And, and I remember right when he was diagnosed, they said, you have stage four cancer. You're a young man. You're going to go into hospice, and this is going to be terminal for you. He posted something on his Facebook page, and I, I took a screenshot of it. And my brother said, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. It's not the most comfortable, necessarily. Not necessarily the most convenient. It might not be what you wanted at the time or what you thought you needed. But I'm telling you, my brother knew this, it's the most satisfying, the most safest place is in the center of his will. So Jesus is doing exactly what God the Father would have him do. And he's led by the Spirit, and here he encounters this temptation. And I I want you to remind you folks here that sometimes the highest times, right, are also followed by some hard times. So why would Jesus be led into the wilderness? It's a defining moment. It truly is. So here's Jesus. He's alone. He's hungry. And we read on here. Boy, Maddie was uh, looking over my notes in the car and she misordered my pages, but that's okay. <laughs> it's probably all in God's plan. My, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure you've had and I've had uh, some defining moments in our Christian life, some, some places that we can look back to, right? And I remember, you know, maybe it was a, after a sermon or in a church service or some grand public place when you, you raised your hand and you said, you know, yes, I, I want to go this way, not that way. I want to make a 180. I want to go from, from sin to holiness. I want to go from, from death to life. I want to go from, from darkness to light. And it was a grand event and something to be celebrated, right? But if I think back on my life, and I'm sure yours too, there's been some defining moments that were also alone. I've had those defining moments when I was a thousand miles from home after, after having messed up and I'm, I'm driving and, and I can't hardly see because tears are streaming down my face and I think that I'm all alone. But then some decisions are made and that's a defining moment as well. So here in this lonely, difficult time, Jesus meets the enemy. And we're introduced to the devil and and a reality that there is spiritual warfare going on. The devil, of course, long ago, despite what, you know, we kind of read about today in regular secular media, you know, he's not a friendly enemy, or he's not an enemy to be doubted or dismissed in any way. He's a very real enemy that is in direct opposition to to God. And long ago, remember, he was created 
to be aligned and centered in God, but ultimately this world was given over to him. And I, I'm telling you, there is no greater reminder that this world belongs to the devil than working as a police officer, I'll tell you that. And uh, if you don't believe me, just ride one night shift with me, and you'll realize that this, the devil is very much active and alive in this world, and he is intent on sowing evil and discord, that without a doubt. And so here it is, the grand face-off, right? We have Jesus coming as the Messiah to ultimately lay claim to this world, and then we have the devil, whose current world he's in. And so I have three quick observations here from verse 2 that I'll summarize quickly before we move on. Uh, Number one, we see that testing and temptation will often come when we're alone, right? I think that sometimes when we're alone, we may feel the most uncertain of what's true and the most vulnerable to compromising, but I think also that's why these times when we're tested and alone, it can be so developing, right? When you decide to do the right thing, when nobody else is looking, when it's just you, God, and the devil, and you make a decision to follow Christ and say yes to him, those, that's certainly a defining moment and a pivotal time. The second thing we see is testing often comes most intensely when we're pursuing God most deeply. And that's sometimes hard to wrap our brain around, right? It's when we dare to kind of defy the ways of this world, and that's when we're exposed to our selfish, sinful desires the most, isn't it? It's when we sometimes feel most the truth about ourselves and our sinful nature, and we feel the most confronted. C.S. Lewis put it this way, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be very good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Christ, because he was the only man who ever never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. A third point is testing is ultimately trying to convince us to trade our true God-given identity for a false one. And we'll touch on this more. Remember that the identity of Christ was, was declared at his baptism, right? God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom am I well pleased. And so the enemy is ultimately trying to claim our identity, right? He wants to draw us away from God, what God says we are, and what God tells us about ourselves. And so we'll, we'll touch on that more later. So if we look at verse 3 and 4 here, um, there's three specific temptations that we're going to look at here. We'll call this temptation number one. And if you look at verse number three and we read it, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by Bread alone. Now, in this passage, you read the word if, right? And if in the Greek can probably more accurately be translated since, or in light of you are the Son of God, command these stones to be bread. And so we know that the devil is very aware of God's power and that God exists. And the, the demons fear God, of course. And that we sometimes think that this 
conflict here is between maybe belief and unbelief, but, but we know that the devil is probably as much of a believer as anybody else on earth at this time. And so what's, what's going on with this temptation? It is the temptation for Jesus to question the love and goodness of God, his Father. And it's a temptation for Jesus to take his provision into his own hands and not trust God's provision. And so I would paraphrase maybe this first temptation this way. The devil is saying to Jesus, you can't trust the ultimate love and goodness of God. So go ahead and trust in your own means to satisfy this world's temporary desires. And so I think the enemy here is ultimately saying, hey, look, you're the son of God. You shouldn't be hungry. You shouldn't be deprived. Don't give up yourself to so much sacrifice and suffering. Take the easy road. The devil here is trying to really confront the purpose of fasting, which is to deny the physical to remind yourself that, that you aren't living by bread alone, right? But by God's word. Remember when, when Satan entered this whole biblical picture in Genesis? He hasn't really changed a lot. He was up to the same old tricks back in Genesis, wasn't he? He said to Adam and Eve in, in Genesis 3, you really believe you know, what God said? You really believe that he's good? Remember that, that he just don't want you to to eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil because at that moment you'll be as wise as he is. You see, the devil is trying to trick Adam and Eve. God's not your friend. He's, he's actually holding out on you. And this is still his strategy here in the New Testament. His strategy is to think, have us think that we, that we believe in God, but in reality, in actual practical life, we don't trust him. So at Jesus' rebuttal of course, we know that when Jesus says man shall not live by bread alone, of course Jesus values eating and he values food and values bread, but he truly understands that life comes from God. And so later, when, when Jesus preached a sermon on the mount, uh, you know, that's why he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. He knows that bread is secondary, right? It's physical. But seeking the kingdom of God is primary. Temptation number two. We'll look at verse five here. So now the devil let, leads him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdom of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor for it is given unto me. And I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Temptation number two. And I think this is where the devil is trying to draw Jesus away from his identity that was given to him by God the Father at his baptism. In essence, I think the second temptation says, don't find your identity in God the Father being pleased with you. Maybe Satan was trying to cast doubt into, into Jesus how, how he began. You know, you, you were born in humility. You were born in a manger. You know, your family had to flee as, as refugees. You live pretty much in obscurity. And you, Jesus, you're so underappreciated. So instead, Jesus, let me give you a, a good view of the glory of this world that I rule. The devil is maybe trying to convince you that of all the people, the devil now knows how to rule in human hearts, right? And so maybe, Jesus, maybe, just maybe you should give your worth to me. You should acknowledge me. You should switch your allegiance to me 
and worship me. So Jesus declares a truth in verse, in verse 8. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that truth is, not, of course, it's truth, but it's also a, a truth that, that sets people free, right? You see, I think you and I as humans, we, we strive for uh, desire and affirmation uh, with God or without him. And, you know, we try to find acceptance and popularity uh, from time to time and maybe be needed in what I call codependent ways or even um, withdrawing from people to hide, you know, our our true feelings and the loss we feel. Um, and, And I don't think that what this is talking about, it doesn't mean that we don't value appreciation and affirmation from others. But what it does mean is, is that we're not enslaved to it. But Jesus, in that statement, he knew that he'd all been, already been verified, right? He'd always been rooted. He'd been loved. He'd been claimed by God the Father, who not only loved him, but also was pleased with him. Uh, by the way, I, I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with the picking of these songs, right? Uh, this that we sang this morning, and but I, I think it's I think it's amazing that we sing about the identity that we have in Christ, right? I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I'm chosen, not forsaking. I am who you say I am. That's our identity in Christ, right? So we continue here with what I'll call temptation number three. Verse nine. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand up on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So the devil took Jesus to this point, the highest point of the temple. And, and, they, and they look down, and here he makes Jesus a really tempting offer, but I think it's kind of funny here. It's not funny, but it's worth noting that the devil, it seems, is getting a little bit smarter, right? So he just saw Jesus defeat the other two temptations by quoting scripture. So now Satan actually quotes scripture himself for his own purposes, only he twists the context, doesn't he? Remember, this is Satan's oldest trick in the book. Twisting context, right? Twisting God's words. And, and by the way, let me pause here. Some of the most dangerous people that the devil will place in your path and in your life, I don't think are those who totally just discount this Bible and throw it out the window. I think it's actually those that use its words but twist them and take them out of context. So let me paraphrase this final temptation this way. The devil may be saying, don't trust his will. Don't be obedient to the son who serves his will. Make him serve your will. Jesus, Jesus, you, you set the terms here. So we read what Jesus says here in verse 12. Jesus answered, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
So I think there's many subtle ways that maybe we in our lives put God to the test, don't we? Uh, we decide what we want to do and when we want to do it, and we know that it may not be what God wants, and then we expect it to God, for God to just make it all work out well. We don't follow the, the wisdom and the red flags that, that God puts up when we just dive headlong into our own path here, and then when it gets a little too much, we cry out for, to God and, and to bail us out. And, and I think there's a practical implication here that we shouldn't just pass over. God promises to deliver us from temptation. There is a difference between that and delivering us from some consequences. And there are some very real consequences that come from choosing our own path. And I know uh, most situations are, are, are complicated, right? Uh, and so I don't want to make light of those, but the Bible gives us several examples of fleeing temptation, like actually running, right? And so recognizing those things and then, and then just, just running. I, my, my sister lives down south and, uh, in Alabama, south central Alabama. And if you've never been to south central Alabama... I know, Phil, you grew up there, and I'm not saying anything derogatory, but it's a different, it's like, uh, it's like a different deal down there, you know? And uh, anyway, I heard a, a story down there of a, a young boy that was, always had to, uh, there was a big watermelon field by his house, and he had to cr- walk by it all the time, and he was getting tempted, you know, that he wanted to just steal some watermelons. So he asked his Sunday school teacher, you know, hey, teacher, every time I walk by this field, man, it's, it's getting tough. My mouth starts watering, and man, I just want to go in there and snatch one of those watermelons up. And the teacher looked at him and he says, look, you can't stop your mouth from watering, but you sure can run, right? So I think there's some truth in that. Sometimes it is as simple as, 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 as running. My dad, for those few of you that have met him, he's a master storyteller, right? And he always used to tell me this story, and I'll tell it at the risk of, of oversimplifying this, but he always used to tell the story about a man in a flood. And uh, he was on his roof, and so it's beginning to flood. The floodwaters are coming up, and the man is sitting on his roof, and his neighbor comes by in a rowboat, and his neighbor says, you know, jump in. It, the flood is getting worse. Jump in the rowboat here, and I'll, we'll go someplace to high ground for safety, and the man on his roof says, no, 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 I'm, God's going to save me. I have faith that God's going to save me. So a few hours later, a person comes by in a motorboat, and the floodwaters are a little bit higher now, and he says, hey, come down off your roof, get in the motorboat, we're going to go to safety here. And the guy says, no thanks, God's going to deliver me. Finally, the, the waters are almost to the edge of the roof, and, and uh, it's getting bad, and a helicopter flies by, and they call down to him, hey, climb up this rope. We're going to take you to safety. And the guy says, no, 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 that's fine. God's going to deliver me. And, uh, well, the floodwaters come, and sure enough, the guy drowns. And he goes to heaven, he asks God, like, what's going on here? You said you were going to deliver me. And God looks at him and he says, well, you know, I sent the rowboat, I sent the motorboat, and I sent the helicopter, I don't know what else you want. 
And, and so I, I realize that that's probably a really imperfect example and, and maybe uh, a poor example, but you're asking me, what does this have to do with temptation? And so if we look at a practical implication here, maybe we look at somebody that struggles with uh, drinking too much, right? And it's New Year's Eve and you have an option. You can go to a party that where you're going to have a toast at midnight or you're going to go to a party where you know it's going to be a drunk fest. And you know which one is which. And then you go and you decide to go to the party that you know is going to be a drunk fest and sure enough, the next morning you're having regrets and you go, what, where did it go wrong here? And I think in that moment, we can look back and we can realize that we had alternatives and we had options. And God did give us other options. And then we can pray for next time for God to open our eyes to those things when it's too late. Because I'm telling you something, as a person that's been there, um, it's a lot easier to make the decision not to go than make a decision once you're already there. And so... God tells us in Corinthians 10, or Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, look, God will provide a way of escape, right? The verse says, there's no temptation that's overtaking you than such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will provide a way of escape. We know that's true, right? And so because that's true, we need to be aware, we need to be vigilant, we need to be watching for those areas of escape, Our text here concludes Luke 4, 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. I think that's an interesting verse, an interesting way to end this. So Jesus won these great battles over temptation that day without question. But the devil is persistent, isn't he? First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around the earth like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. So there's an important lesson here at the end. And that lesson is because the devil is persistent, we must be persistent in our dependence on God for deliverance and victory in temptation. And so, what is the takeaway this morning? What, what do we want to learn from this defining moment in the life of Jesus? What do we want to learn? I want you to turn now to, to the book of Hebrews. I'll have it on the screen. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.14. And it reads like this. Since then we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin.
what do we want to take away from today? Well, it's very simple. Jesus brings redemption for our brokenness. Where we have failed, Jesus brings deliverance. Where we were slaves to sin, Jesus brings freedom. And where we have tempted, Jesus provides the way of escape. And I think really, in part, that's the gospel message, isn't it? The good news is not only that Jesus sympathizes with us and provides a great example in the, in the book all through the Gospels and all through his life, but the great thing is he hasn't left us alone either. He has promised to walk with us through these things and rescue us. This is who Jesus is, and, and the truth of that has the power to transform our lives. The Gospel message... The gospel message is, as they say, it's not just a drop of water on a warm day. It's the power of God to transform our souls and completely renovate our lives from inside out. So, what do we do with that information? Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us draw with confidence near to the throne of grace. That way we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this brief reminder this morning from Luke chapter 4. And we thank you that you walked this earth and encountered many of the things that we are going through today. And so not only can you sympathize with us. You've given us a, a wonderful example on how to walk through these everyday things. But, but not only that, Father, you, you provide us a way of escape. You provide the healing. You provide the deliverance. And help us not to forget that this morning. Lord, when we're tempted this week, and we will be, when we're tempted, help us to remember that. In your name we pray. Amen. I don't know what's next, Dave. Do you have a uh, do you have a a benediction or or if not I have one. Okay, we're going to close this service if you can stand with me. The benediction from today uh, and, and that's okay. I didn't have a benediction until I realized that you might not and so I got one here. The Bible is full of <laughs> The Bible is full of them, right? So we just got to pick one and I picked one from the book of James chapter 1. Book of James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever, and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Have a good week.